Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Welcome, everyone. I'm uh, Jason Rodenbeck with Forging Plowshares, and I am here with uh, someone who's very special to me. Um, this is my wife, Vanjie, and I'm going to uh, kind of try to introduce her to you. First of all, she's beautiful, and right now she is um, scowling at me, but that's okay. Um, she and I met about seven years ago, eight years ago, does that seem right? Um, 2008, 10 years ago. And um, she uh, finished her master's degree at Lincoln Christian University, um, same place I did, and uh, with a degree, a master's of arts degree in um, theology. Um, Her thesis was uh, kind of a different one. It dealt with uh, disability and the image of God. And um, Vanjie had uh, a very unique experience. Um, I suppose it's probably not quite as unique um, for all those who have had a similar experience. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience um, with what we often call disability and how that changed your um, perspective on the goals and the purpose of the gospel? Right. Well, I always like to say um, whenever I'm leading our workshop that I remember being in college and being a freshman and taking a class called um, some introduction to special education class and getting back to my dorm room with my roommate. And I vividly remember taking that book and hefting it across the room and it hit my bed and it slid across my bed and then it hit the floor and then it slid under her bed. And I can still remember hitting the wall. And she said, you'd better pick that up. You're going to need that to study for the quiz at the end of this week. And I said, I don't need that. I'm not going to teach kids like that. And I always say that to let people know the whole world of disability and people that learned differently and approach life differently was just something completely foreign to me. I had no training and no interest to get any training in this at all. And then I had a child who was very different. Um, He was diagnosed at age three and a half as significantly developmentally delayed, which in the medical model um, equals out to um, basically a a level of mental retardation. Um, Excuse that word. There's just not really another medical word for it. Um, and he was forecasted never to read, write, or speak. Um, Later, he would be put on the profound, um, severe to profound end of the autism spectrum. And everything about everything changed for me. And I didn't go into it in a great, happy, oh, I'm just so excited about this. I was kicking and screaming and um, crying and not knowing what I was doing. And one of the things that was the most difficult and confusing things for me was that I was at the time employed at a church. Um, I was a woman on staff. I was a children's minister. um, And I had been taught from a very young age and had continued to teach forever that we were God's special creation. 
set aside for him as image bearers of him because we had the ability to think and to act right and to know him and then add to that equation the ability to contribute by participating in our own salvation and with those those parts of the equation being able to think act and know him plus being able to contribute and participate in your salvation that made you an image bearer and then maybe you would lose image bearing because of sin or something like that um, because and that was you not being able to participate in your salvation or at the worst case scenario if you were somebody who was profoundly disabled or in the instances of children that died early they love to say that those people were covered by grace and it really wasn't necessary for you to know god or to really be an image bearer of his um none of that was really necessary and here i was this figure at this church this children's minister who every piece of curriculum i had said that those healings that I'm teaching these boys and girls is there's just Jesus making something right. That was very, very wrong mm -hmm. physically. So Jesus is going to make this right. Now this person's going to be physically right. And now this person's going to be whole. Which means that the people that currently don't receive that kind of miraculous healing that we find in the new Testament aren't ever made whole. We're just waiting till maybe someday in the future. Oh, absolutely. So I'm this children's minister that was great at programming, um, had the very best programming, had a program that had doubled in size twice, by all accounts was very successful, and I had the only child that could not participate in it. Mm. As a matter of fact, the last place he could go was church or a Christian school. Yet, I was watching this child, even being nonverbal, internalizing the message of the gospel very differently. And I was looking at that and saying, number one, that is cognition. I'm not sure they're right. And number two, I think I see the image of God in that. Mm -hmm. But I have this test that says that basically his prefrontal cortex looks like Swiss cheese. And at the very best, he's going to wind up a serial killer one day because he doesn't have the ability to make good decisions. He can no way be an image bearer of God. And I'm caught in between these two very different realities. And basically, I found myself weekly thinking, ultimately, we got caught on the wrong side of creation somehow. And I'm not really sure how it happened. Um, so I, I did the only thing I could think to do, which was begin to change programming, begin to edit curriculum, begin to try and learn, take different approaches. When I did that, a curriculum company actually found out and hired me to come on and implement some of those changes for them professionally. So I did that, but that led to speaking at conferences. So I went, I, I spoke at conferences for many years and I would do these classes on these special tracks for including children with different abilities in your church. Um, but I found people still relegating us to, at worst, something they didn't have the church insurance for. They weren't really sure what that disability insurance was, because they could have all the old folks on pacemakers and in wheelchairs in the world come up as long as they could write a check. Um, they could come to church, but they were pretty sure that kids like my son, they did not have insurance to be able to cover them to be in the building. Mm. At the worst, that's what we got. Or at the best, we were just something that Jesus was going to make right one day. And I couldn't 
make that the Jesus of the gospel that I had read and come to know. So I basically had to unpack everything. And as if I hadn't lost enough friends already in the autism journey, because people, you don't get invited to a lot of playdates when your child can't go. Um, as that theology changed and as I began to research and study, um, a lot of people found it difficult to hear some of those changes. Um, but it profoundly changed what I thought gospel meant, what I thought healings meant, mm -hmm. what I thought the purpose in all of that was, and basically leading to a more restorative idea of the entire gospel message. So um, it sounds like, uh, this is kind of a follow-up, I didn't list this as one of the questions I had written down, but it sounds like um, that in some ways what you're really dealing with is there was a dehumanizing um, element to the experience where um, whether um, intentionally or not, no matter how well-meaning folks were, that there's a there's an element of of uh, dealing with uh, your son's autism that it, where you kind of almost had to fight to get him recognized really fully as a human being. Um, he's it's easy to marginalize somebody, and I think that's what a lot of if you don't mind me inputting here a little bit, I think that a lot of what what ends up happening is there's a marginalization that happens where this person, like you said, is relegated to somebody that is going to get fixed someday, but we can't do anything about it. Um, or maybe is if, if they have some kind of success is marginalized to an inspirational story that we can all feel good about and maybe shed a tear about, um, but not somebody that we might um, invest a lot of ourselves and our time in getting to know as a friend. Yeah, there are really two ways that the marginalization, marginalization happens. Um, you know, marginalization is fitting in on the margins on the outside of a standard or a norm. Um, and it's who's deciding what that standard and that norm is. Mm -hmm. um, and when you start giving that a lot of thought, you start opening up a lot of boxes you never intended on opening. And, but the, the, and what benefits there are. Right. to those kind of what follows that what structure this is supporting right um mm -hmm. as that follows through um and we're going to do a lot of that in the course right. um the the first thing is like you said the very much the obvious making someone the other mm -hmm. um which is exclusion based on the otherness of their ability um or like their uh, their race their gender their age their socioeconomic um, that exclusion, it removes them from the community by exclusion. Mm -hmm. um, it sees people in a deficit, very much like the medical model of disability. You look at a set of norms and you see a deficit therein. Also like a checkbook, perhaps. <laughs> you look and you mm -hmm. see the deficit therein where you would like people to be. Um, and this is violent. Mm -hmm. Or you make someone a mission. Mm -hmm. You either make them the other or you go the complete other way and you make them the mission. And, and believe it or not, this reduces them to only their difference, mm -hmm. only their race, only their gender, only their age, only their differentness and ability. Um, and it sets them up as a charity or an act of extreme kindness mm -hmm. or, and spiritualizes them and who they are. 
and it typically still removes them from the community the right. same way. And it is, it is exactly. still exclusive or it is not fully inclusive. And when I say not fully inclusive, I mean not by half. Um, for instance, yes, we love your son. We'd love him to come. We'd love him to be a part of church. Well, he'd love to participate. Is there any way he can participate? Uh, you know, dead silence. Well, he loves, he's learned how to read. Um, he would love to read scripture. Well, we could never let him read scripture because he has a speech impediment. Well, if the other people were reading scripture along with him, though, they could read the appropriate text, even if he did have a speech impediment, they could read. Now, the, the standard answer I've gotten to that is, Oh, but a lot of people don't bring their Bibles and we will want to have to put them out by asking them to bring their Bibles so that they could read along right. with him because that's ridiculous. So there's always sort of this element where we're keeping them the other, even as a mission that still is saying we're doing a mission to those people over there that it's still pointing away to the other. And then to be inclusive means that one has to give up something that the, 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 I, the idea have people have is if we include them, then that means one of us has to have less. Of course, I think that you might look at the way Paul internalizes the gospel, um, where he says um, he, he sort of calls the gospel a kind of equalizer, right? So there's no more male, no more female, no more Jew, no more Gentile. Well, in equalization, we do make sacrifices for one another, but that's what makes us all the same and all part of the same body. Yeah, Paul would say we're being inclusive of these people. There automatically is no more inclusion. There there doesn't need to be inclusion if we're all equal. Mm -hmm. There there's there's no need to In Christ we've been made equal. We've been made equal. So inclusion implies that someone is other, is extra, and it, it robs them of their personhood. I mean, and that is violence. What both of these two ways of setting groups aside do is, number one, it both diminishes the Imago Dei. It both diminish, they both diminish the image of God in that person, mm -hmm. either by making them a mission or by pushing them aside as other, because you're not fully including them in community. You're not recognizing them as you. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's not restorative. Mm -hmm. And that idea of Having restoration without making someone a mission, without making them a charity, um, is really tricky. And that's a part a lot of places miss. But if you're on the other side of that, mm. and you've been on the side of that charity, boy, let offering drop. And the first thing that's going to go is their disability ministry. Mm. Let something go, um, you know, a little bit sideways with the budget, and they're going to cut their seniors trips or any of the programs they have for people that are aged um, because they were a mission. Mm -hmm. They weren't community. They were, it was a mission of the church and there are missions, but the, the way you see that, the way you cast that light, making someone other because they're less than um, is not restorative. That's not the restorative message that we have. So, um, Gosh, there's so much um, there's so much there that uh, I, I would love to dig into, and I think we we'll probably we probably will. Um, you were kind of in on some of the ground floor discussions of uh, forging plowshares. Um, of course, we're both good friends with Paul and Faith Axton, and um, and, and and so um, 
me talking to you about um, our the model of atonement that we've uh, sort of rejected and that how we've tried to understand what it means that Jesus has come to save us. All that we feel is largely intertwined with being peaceful. It has to do with um, uh, our attitudes about violence and power. And um, it's going to have a great deal to do with uh, the world's sort of predication about the necessity of violence. Now, as you have approached these issues of social injustice and marginalization, can you describe how things like inclusion, um, um, social justice of marginalized groups, that, that's really the same issue as, and you've kind of hit on it in talking about violence, um, dig a little deeper in how those are really the same issue as peace and, and restoration. It's, um, it, it's multifaceted. I think I first realized the inherent difference um, when my son was about five and he was having a fight with his cousin. And I kind of pulled up on the scene because he was staying at my sister's for the day. And I pulled up and my sister has my son and her son is on the ground and she's yelling at my child, hit him, hit him back, hit him, hit him. And my son is staring at her crying at the instruction to hit her little boy. And I said, what's, what's going on? She said, oh, he's been mean to him all day long, and I'm trying to teach your son to take up for himself and to hit him back. And Noah was absolutely crushed and was in a panic and wound up fleeing into the house, and I went and I found him, and I said, Noah, what, what, you're upset. He could barely talk. He said, yes. And I said, you, you didn't want to hit your cousin Grady. He shook his head no, and he was weeping inconsolably. I said, why, why didn't you want to hit Grady? And he looked up at me, and he said, because I love him. I, I can't hit him. I love him. And I thought, well, that's it, isn't it? Just can't. Now, the real moral to the story comes in the response of everyone in my family who heard that their response was wow didn't Noah show a different way didn't Noah turn the other cheek didn't Noah act like Christ isn't he an image bearer their attitude was aren't you so worried about him what is he ever going to become how in the world can you let him be going to school every day with that attitude yeah. And these are church-going Christian mm -hmm. people that have got a spot on the pew warmed every Sunday morning. But they're saying, how in the world is he going to be able to participate in the power structures of this world yeah. if that is how he is going to act? And they were genuinely more worried about that than they were about anything else he could not do. The fact that that was his attitude. And I began, to, that's when I began to question the power structures that were around a lot of marginalizations. Because once you, you've been at this place and once you see it, uh, this is a warning, you can't unsee mm -hmm. it. It really becomes just a part of the way you look at everything. So one of the things we ask a lot in the course is as we are studying 
marginalization through age or through socioeconomic or we're looking at race, we're going to stop and say, now what power system does this support? Who does this benefit? Why is this system in power? Any kind of system that is there that has set this up was not what God intended. So it's man-made. So there's a reason why it has been set up there to benefit someone. Who does this benefit? It's not going to be the marginalized person. It, it's not going to be them. Even if there's a lie told that it is benefiting them, it's not going to be them. You can see who the benefit is going to be for. And to say, all right, now, what did Jesus say about that? And how did his radical kingdom reforms and his teaching come in to be a fulfillment of laws, oftentimes that God had already laid in place for social justice? to keep people off of the margins, that he came and said, I am a fulfillment of that. And we're completely pulling the margins in. So it really sounds like the, in this course, and the course that um, Vangie is, is referring to is a new course that's going to be starting on the 21st of January um, in 2019 um, called Marginalization and Restorative Justice. It's a Plowshares Bible Institute course. We're really excited about it. And the, the, the thing that I think it does is it sort of is going to work out uh, the things that Vanjie's talking about in, as far as how Jesus kingdom seeks to restore people that have been marginalized by the world's power structures. And, um, and really what we're talking about here is again, this Paul and I, and I think a lot of the folks that Paul ends up talking to at plowshares end up coming to the same conclusion. It really tends to be about power in the end. Um, and one of the things that struck my mind as you were talking just a little bit ago is that the way Jesus equalizes is by restoring a godly kind of self attitude that says, I'm willing to bear a cross with and for you. And if we're willing to bear a cross with and for one another, that is ultimately complete letting go of power in order to be one with each other. Yes. But it's, it's certainly not something that's going to be terribly popular. So on that note where what we're, we're really talking about is power, I think it might be, or, or what we're talking about is power and our attitudes about power and the relationship of power and violence and marginalization of, of people. Um, would you talk a little bit about the textbooks that you've chosen for the course? Um, Cause I love that you've chosen both of them. Um, but uh, maybe talk a little bit about the Amos John book first, and then talk about the uh, Harawas and Jean Vanier book. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on Jean Vanier's mission. Absolutely. Um, I chose a book that I relied heavily on in my thesis called The Bible, Disability, and the Church, A New Vision of the People of God by Amos Young. And while it does um, delve mostly into disability, he does a lot of hermeneutical work with Old Testament and New Testament passages. I'm working a lot to say, um, hey, it may have been a preconceived notion, or you may have always heard taught that this story was about this, but please know when we go back to the Old Testament, we really see God pulling out themes of justice and inclusion 
So when you see Jesus do this, no, that's what Jesus was thinking. Um, so it's a wonderful text specifically for disability, but as much as I can throughout the course, I've tried to pull aside and say, now let's apply that to socioeconomic marginalization. Now let's stop and apply that to race. Um, because in some of the instances like the Ethiopian eunuch, um, it was about race. Um, and, and, and that's also covered in this text. So um, this does so much hermeneutical work that I think is necessary to do. If you're gonna come in and talk to people about um, a different notion of how to handle um, people with disability and people that are marginalized because they have a answer often that they believe um, is biblical, that they have derived from a verse. Um, and you have to learn to listen to that and know where they got that. Um, and being a listener is very important. But also through that, you knowing how to go back through text and say, well, let me show you something else. And this book really equips you to do that. So a so, little bit of you've heard it said, but I tell you. But I tell you. Right. Okay. That's right. So um, I really love the Amos Young book. Um, so, and they're, they're both short books, um, and expensive, but, um, it's really a cornerstone for, mm -hmm. for that, um, okay. recommended. Um, the second book is by Stanley Hauerwas and Jean Vanier, and it's called Living Gently in a Violent World, The Prophetic Witness of Weakness. Um, now it's a set of essays that kind of go back and forth between Vanier and Stanley Hauerwas, and the um, introduction is actually by John Swinton. And um, they're, they're talking about weakness and they kind of use the disability community as a springboard to talk about the idea of weakness across culture. Um, so they are a little bit more inclusive. Now, Jean Vanier, um, and there's a wonderful uh, video in the course that goes into his life yeah. is a great documentary, but he is the founder of the La Arche Institute, um, which is a network of communities where people with intellectual differences and disabilities live with people without those in community. Um, I think there's 150 countries in the world that have a La Arche um, community in those countries. Um, and it's a model that's not the medical model, it's not the social model, it's not the interface model, it's a community model. And it's not that missional keeping, these, this is something we're doing for these poor people over here who we're going to, we call them people, but in a way it's kind of, they're not really. Yeah, it is, it is a completely different um, concept and way of looking at being with. There is no being other yeah. in that. Um, and the way it's done so beautifully, um, the way the essays are written, um, it's very easy to take the constructs that are laid out and apply them across marginalized people groups and say, um, how would it be different if we were living with, mm -hmm. if we really had to live with, if we had to practice presence, mm -hmm. if we lived in communion, would we be able to hold some of these same views? Would we be able to allow some of the same treatments 
that we see if we were living with side by side and people were not other and what makes them other and then let's look at the Sermon on the Mount and see all the ways Jesus didn't want them to be other. Um, this is an amazing, amazing book. And, and it goes so much into peacekeeping and into why we make war and how otherness causes war. It's just, mm. it's a phenomenal um, reference that I think um, goes to a lot of what we do at Plowshares. Um, Cause it talks about prophetic witness, um, us being a witness prophetically to the world around us, but not just in a way of being that prophet that stands and shouts out and has that burning spirit, but how weakness is actually its own witness. And it seems to me that that weakness is really the power of the cross that Jesus demonstrates, right? Um, and um, um, and I think it's, and, and, and forgive me, but isn't, isn't Paul also say that his power is, or was Paul referring to himself when he referred to his own made perfect, made perfect, made complete yeah. in weakness. And your power is made complete in my weakness. Right. Um, and that really, I think that's the message that Jesus calls us to be. Correct me also if I'm wrong, but I think um, Henry Noun was a part of the large community. Am I- he did. He was a part of the Irish community, um, lived and um, came to live at a place called Daybreak in Toronto mm-hmm. um, and ended his um, career as a caregiver um, there while he had been at several divinity schools and had taught and was very renowned, um, chose to end his career as a theologian, um, as a caregiver. and. Several of his books and diaries are on recommended recommended reading list um, mm-hmm. for the way it profoundly affected <clears throat> Nowen. Um, and there'll be some that I'll talk about during lecture, just some moments from books um, to give tidbits of Nowen's um, transformation of who he became because of uh, the influence of those who are weak. So if you don't mind me uh, sort of sharing it, my, <clears throat> one of my experiences with Nellen um, that impressed me so much is the way Nellen would reflect on how he had been sort of headed for this sort of greatness model of being this well-known theologian, I think in Notre Dame, um, and then decided to spend a lot of time with people with such devastating intellectual I keep, we keep using the word disability, and I think what we prefer is different ability, differently abled. Um, but, um, and one of the things he, he had to come to grips with is none of these people that he was sitting next to, some of whom were nonverbal, uh, could care less about how many books he'd read and how many pages he'd written. Um, and that he had learned, um, I remember one, one snippet where he talked about how he had learned communion by just being present with someone who was nonverbal, just sitting next to them and being present and how much that meant just to be in one another's company and to be able to sit side by side, not with my arm outstretched to you in some sort of pity, but a, but together. And it, and it, 
what it did was it it contrasted with an experience I'd had at a church in the town where I had gone to Bible college, and they had a a, a super kitchen pantry ministry. Um, but they had decided that, you know, we don't want this just to be, there was, there was this sort of dualism that is very common in the churches I came from where the spiritual is what we're really here to do. And the physical isn't. Mm -hmm. And so giving people cans of soup is not really an adequate way to minister. We really need to also give them a spiritual thing. So they devised this and asked me to speak at it. They devised this whole rigmarole where they would separate uh, once a month all these people would come in to get uh, to go use the pantry and get food for their families and you would march them through room by room in these groups and in this room we'd take their names and in this room we'd we'd let them pick the food that they were going to have and everything was sort of rationed out and in this room they'd have to go listen to a sermon and I remember thinking, well, yeah, I'll help with that. And then in the midst of it, feeling like we were humiliating these people. These were still others. These were, in fact, there was almost, there was a condescension about it that I went home and said, I'm never going to do something like that again. There was never a point where I felt like in that, in that day, here I am side by side with you. Let me bear this with you. And, and it seems to me that when you're talking about issues of poverty, issues of racial discrimination, the things I've seen when people are mistreated in your office or where you work, when you come alongside them, you've got to bear some of that. You're going to pick up some poverty to truly come along beside someone in poverty. You're going to, side with someone who's experiencing racial uh, discrimination. You're going to experience some of that discrimination. And it's true with, with uh, um, Henry Nowen and the large community. He had to experience that speechlessness with that person. And that, but that's the message I think of the cross, right? That we are, if you don't mind me talking about, your son, we get to be autistic by being with Noah and he starts doing something autistic in a restaurant. Yes. We too get to be the ones everybody is looking at. Absolutely. But I'll take it. I'll take it. Now I may say, hey, come on, let's put that. But let I'll take it. Does that does that ring with what Absolutely. you're doing in the class zone? It's there's something about the incarnation here staring at my Christmas tree, thinking about Advent. There's something about the incarnation that said, I'm coming to be with you in relationship yeah. with you, to recognize you so closely. Vanier says the two principles he has is that every person is precious. And the second one is you can only recognize that preciousness if you are in, if someone sees it in you through relationship. So preciousness and the recognition of the preciousness of another human being through relationship. And he says that when you're in that relationship with him, you do it through humility. 
and you have a meeting and a communion. And he says that when that happens, the eternal in me meets the eternal within you. And there is no other in that. That's where there is no male or female, Jew nor Greek, rich nor poor, autistic or neurotypical. Black or white. Black or white. Um, the eternal in me meeting the eternal in you. But how do we recognize the power structures that we are living with every day that are stopping me from calling out the preciousness in another human being mm. and getting to know the eternal in them mm. by sitting with them and letting them get to know the eternal in me. That's really where we're going to go. So you learn truly by doing this, you learn to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yeah. Your neighbor is yourself. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I would say to come and expect to feel, um, you know, we're going to talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I was a little bit overwhelmed when I was putting the course together. I definitely had disability in my wheelhouse the most. Um, I grew up here in Atlanta in a very civil rights oriented city. Sure, so yeah. I had kind a the heart of the civil yeah, rights movement. I had a lot of resources for um, racial reconciliation already. And, and I filled in a lot of other blanks, but it's just so much. So um, we're going to come in and not be able to fully unpack everything, but it's going to still give you a lot to think about. Um, so at times you may feel um, changed about something and at the same time frustrated. And, and really we're going to give you some stuff to wrestle with, some mm -hmm. stuff to think about. And we're going to be conversation partners together as we go through and hopefully lifelong conversation partners. Yeah. Um, because I know I need more people to talk right. to about it. Um, but ultimately what everyone says to me is um, when I start talking about these things, but you can't change the world. You can't come right. in and make the big difference. You can't make a place for every child. Like, no, you can't do it. No, but I can recognize the eternal in the ones that come across my path. Yeah. And I can talk about it to others so that they can do the same thing. So for me, I leave these conversations feeling more ultimately hopeful. Yeah. So I would ask you to expect that as well. Not to say we're going to leave you at frustrated, but we're going to make you feel hopeless because it is still being in being a mustard seed kingdom. These are such small things, yeah. small things that help us know preciousness in someone else and restore them to image bearing when the power systems of the world have decided they're not worthy of that. I'm excited about this course for a lot of reasons. Um, I think the one that I'm most, I think the reason I'm most excited about it is um, a lot of what we've done so far with our courses at, at Plushers Bible Institute has has kind of laid the theological groundwork. Um, been there, It's been a little heavy on the theoretical. So we've gone through a couple of gospels um, where we've unpacked the theology of the book of John, and that's an excellent class. Uh, we just finished up um, with a few guys um, doing the gospel of Matthew course, which I'm kind of fond of because that's one of mine. Um, 
and a basic theology course uh, that Paul did uh, at the beginning of the Plowshares Bible Institute, um, which are all still available. This one is I, at the risk of using sort of military uh, parlance. It's really boots, boots on, on the, the ground. ground. Yeah, <laughs> it's really it's very practical. And and not only I've seen the the course material and the syllabus where we'll have it all ready here in about a week or so. Um, but I, one of the things I've I think is impressive is not just asking questions, but also really forcing us to start in and think about ways we can be the church with each other and issues like um, socioeconomic marginalization and poverty, um, racial, gender, age discrimination. And, and I know you're coming at it um, having done most of your thinking from disability, but the issue, the central issues of what causes these things mm-hmm. is the same, yes. are the same. So very excited about it. And we hope that, um, I'm really hoping that a lot of folks um, will will participate in this one. Um, um, I heartily endorse it. And not just because Vanjie is my beautiful bride. So um, thank you so much for doing this. And um, again, that should be, that will be ready on the 21st of January. First time we'll be we'll be running that course. Alright. Thank you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.